I'm Andrea Crothers. Welcome to the Great Southern Grass Matters podcast. Peter Andrews was just 13 years old when he moved to Australia from Greece to a tiny little town called Trengi in western New South Wales. He couldn't speak a word of English, but would soon go on to open a butcher in Sydney. Now, Andrews Meat Industries is a market leader in food service. Today's guest is his son, Peter Andrews Jr., who helped expand and grow at a rapid rate. Peter, thanks so much for joining me. The Andrews Meat story is really such an incredible one. But what I'm really curious to know is, what was the first moment you realised you were going to follow your father into the meat business? Uh, it's a good question. Um, so it was around, would have been 80, 88, 89. Um, I actually joined the business in late 89. But I suppose it goes a bit bit further back from that where Dad used to always make us work in the family business on every school holiday from the age of probably eight years old, eight, nine years old. So we'd, we had retail shops um, and it would be doing anything in the factory from cleaning up or um, helping wherever we could. And as we got older, obviously, we started to, you know, um, play a more important role in our school holidays in different parts of the business. So whether it could be sales or collecting money from clients or doing deliveries or um, but we're always there to help the management and staff. Um, but it was around sort of um, – well, I finished school in um, in 88 uh, and I did my first semester at uni, um, 89, uh, and that's when the business got into some financial trouble. And I always had a close connection with the business. So as soon as I heard that, I then um, deferred my course, which I obviously never went back to, and um, – and then join the business, and um, the rest is history. I've been there since. So in 1988-89, yourself and Harry got involved. Michael came in the late 90s. This was sort of that real turning point for Andrew's meet. You were sort of really integral in terms of shifting that direction. Tell us where you decided to take it. Yeah, so so 89-90, I was with my brother Harry. Michael hadn't joined yet, and we – we sort of uh, the, the, we had to try to turn the business around or change it or look to how we were going to change. So the first five years was really just grinding it out the way the business was and just trying to get the business back on its feet. Um, it was around sort of mid nineties. Um, I started to look at uh, portion control, value add, um, and 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 looking at how we could slowly look at diversifying the business. And we started at you know, talk to suppliers about different brand meat products and so forth. And there wasn't a, a lot around then. Uh, it wasn't like what you see now. Like there wasn't a lot of branded meat products around at all. So we had to be creative and we had to try to deal with um, – we were a much smaller business too. So we, we used to try and find small farmers and people that wanted to work with us and we'd try to brand their products and so forth to sell to to, to chefs. And we also wanted to get away from that commodity um, market that we were in uh, so then we 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 kept working on that from about 95 to around 98 99 is when we started to hit our strides and we we started to do a lot more of the portion control value add we started to enter into the market into the the, the, the higher end restaurant market um, and, and a lot of pubs around that time were starting to um, um, deal with better cuts of meat and, and even clubs and hotels. It was it was an interesting time, and uh, it was around 2000. I think we had the Olympics, so around that time you had 
there was a lot of new hotels opening, a lot of new restaurants opening. So it was a really good time. How would you describe that time in terms of that growth? Uh, in the late 90s or, or Yeah, after? the late 90s, move, moving into the 2000s, the way that the business moved along. So 2000 was interesting because um, we – we purchased um, – it was around the – so 2000 around the time when my brothers and I actually took over uh, control of the business. So we purchased the business off the family uh, in 2001, actually. So 2000, we got through the Olympics. We were doing um, – uh, we did, did a lot of the work for the stadium and a lot of corporate caterers that were doing work related to the Olympics. So it was a busy time for us. Um, and that's when things started to really change. The city was – there was a good vibe in the city – a lot of new, as I mentioned before, a lot of, a lot of new restaurants, new hotels. Um, it was a busy time. So you've obviously got three very clear divisions with your food service, your pre-cooked, your export and branded meat makes up a big part of what you do. Yeah. If you want so, to run us through that, you've got the Wagyu obviously is very well known for, but then the grass-fed's also quite flagship to what you offer. Yeah, so so we, so we in, in 2004 when we we, we – diversified the business into the cooked value add, the export um, under the grains brand and then Tajima with the Wagyu. And then we obviously still had a food service business. The, the, one of the main reasons we wanted to grow that export business was to supply back into the food service through that supply chain uh, our own brands, brands that we could control. So we weren't relying on companies letting us, allowing us to, to, to or give us exclusivity to, to distribute their brands because – what we found was every time we take on a brand for another company, then over a matter of time, for whatever reason, or change of direction in their business, you'd lose that brand. So I wanted to really control the brands that we had, and that's the main reason we did. We embarked on that diversification and got into export, and the export business ended up flourishing into a much bigger business. So initially, it was to to export to export products and also supply our food service business with branded meat products such as the grains product. But since then. We've obviously taken on a lot of brands over the years. Obviously, branded products is central to your business. Where does Great Southern fit into that? Great Southern has become integral to the business now. Basically, it's become the leading brand for all our pasture-fed product that we sell. So Great Southern's become the base for that. So you've got Great Southern, uh, the Great Southern Pinnacle, and the Little Joe within that family of brands. The Pinnacle being the Marble Score 2 product and the Little Joe being the Marble Score 4 product. The Andrews business now is relying on that pasture-fed model of farm-assured model of Great Southern in leading the way for our customers to to have a consistent product. And what was the big appeal of having these grass-fed brands to you? What sets them apart? Where do they fit within what you offer? Number of reasons. Uh, it's definitely on trend with chefs, uh, pasture-fed product. Uh, so if you go back to grain-fed, we always used to buy grain-fed uh, for our food service business um, back all through from 2004 right through till you know, 2010 and 11. It was primarily grain-fed, and it was mainly because chefs were chasing marbling. Uh, marble product. Uh, but the problem with grain-fed product is it's also got a very, it can have a very large eye muscle size, which makes it very hard to uh, to portion control, uh, to cut smaller steak sizes that chefs are preferring these days. With the farm-assured products, the good thing with that was that chefs were after, were wanting a pasture-fed product that was also marbled. And the farm-assured range offers that. We do have those different 
marbled graded products within that range. It's also a smaller eye muscle, which lends itself well to using a lot of different cuts on the animal um, and using it different ways. So you can do a lot more work with cuts like T-bone or rib sirloin or an OP rib as they're a smaller eye muscle, which means you can you can cut a steak from on a bone-in product from a 300-gram to a 500-gram product, whereas a grain-fed product, you're sort of starting at 500-gram with a lot of those bone-in uh, primals that we use. So it gives us a lot more versatility, gives the chefs more options. On the boneless cuts, uh, like a strip loin or a, or a cube roll or a tenderloin, again, they're smaller eye muscles. So you, it's easier to cut a 200-gram or a 180-gram steak with a little bit of thickness to it, which is what the chefs want. If you try to cut that size steak off a grain-fed primal, it's a much thinner steak, and it's, the chefs prefer that thickness for ease of cooking. So, Peter, October last year, there was blockchain-based traceability system announced for the King Island beef brand. What does that then mean for Andrew's Meat? Uh, really exciting uh, for us, but more so for the for the end user. So, chefs will be able to buy a piece of meat, uh, buy a primal or a portion stake and trace it back to the, the vendor or the farmer uh, who grew grew the cattle and supplied the cattle in the first place. So having that complete traceability is really – there's a lot of future in that. And I think this is what what chefs are looking for, or not just chefs but even retail customers, having that, that link to the farmer uh, via knowing where the meat came from. Um, and, you know, it's that whole provenance story where it came from, who grew it, and it just it just supports and underpins the quality of that product and the value of that product as well. Um, I think it's extremely important. It's exciting. Not only that demand, I guess, in seeing the paddock to plate, but in terms of that data, what producers could then use that for for their herd management and improvement to then keep ensuring they produce these products. That surely will have a big impact. Definitely, uh, uh, it's, it's going to. It's as I said before. It's it's not just for the end user, uh, as in the chef or the retail. I think, I think the farmers are going to get more out of this than anybody else in the long run, um, as as information and data is collected over time. I mean, this is all very new. It's just started. It'll just keep improving as time goes on. But all that collection of information and data uh, going back to the vendor is extremely important for them to improve their their herd um, and, and the quality of the meat that they're they're producing themselves. Do you see a time when I guess this will just be part of the norm? I think once once the end user starts seeing these uh, more and more of these products hitting the market, there'll be more demand for it, so more people, more and more suppliers will have to go this way. Working with so many thousands of venues and effectively chefs, that mustn't be easy. No, it's not. We've got about two thousand active clients. Um, I still, I still, I still know. A lot of these guys, uh, a lot of the chefs that I, oh, I've been dealing with some of these guys for 20 years, 15 to 20 years, and um, then they, they look, they, they've been very loyal to the business and, and they've been very happy with what we do, but the business has grown a lot over the years and we now have 2,000 active clients and, and that equates to roughly about 800 to 900 deliveries per day that we do uh, and all that meat has to be we're a just-in-time business, which means that they're ordering the night before, deliver the next day. So we've got a window of about, you know, five to six hours through the early hours of the morning to get all that product cut and put onto a truck and delivered uh, on that day. How important is then having that 
farm assurance program and the consistency and supply to ensuring that you're meeting the needs of what each of these particular clients want? Yeah, it's important in the sense that, uh, especially with the relationship we have with Great Southern and 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 their Farm Assured program, is that you have guarantee of supply. So we purchase the product in advance. We have security that we will get the product uh, delivered to us and supplied to us. Uh, we have they give us a commitment on how much they can supply uh, of that product over over a forecasted period of time. So when you're quoting to chefs for chefs menus um, for these products you can they want to know well can we get this product for the next six months or 12 months or three months whatever it may be uh, can we leave it on the menu um, and what's what is the price stability on that product and we can get that with this product um, and, and having that guarantee of supply and quality behind it uh, really helps where do you see demand for grass-fed going in a few years I think it'll only increase, especially now with products like Little Joe. So if you said to me five years ago, I'm going to show you a Marble Score 4-plus grass-fed product, I wouldn't believe you. Uh, it just didn't exist. Uh, but through this program and the work that the guys have done down there, they've developed this product, and it's absolutely amazing. It's marble. It looks like a, a grain-fed product. Uh, it's a nice small eye of meat. Um, and I think when chefs see that uh, and they see what they can get out of pasture-fed beef, um, they will just keep wanting that product and it, it just creates more interest around it. The grain-feds become more of a generic product compared to the premium pasture-fed products in the marketplace. Peter, I do want to move on to 2020. Obviously, no one could have seen just how big of an impact COVID would have in meat trade, no different production, logistics, demand, it's all, nothing's been spared from the impact. What has this whole process been like for yourselves? Yeah, really hard. You know, we're a, we're a business that's, you look at it this way, we're a business that has only ever since 2000, has only ever gone one way and that's just, it's grown year on year. Uh, that's all our staff's ever seen is an out. Um, the people that have worked with us have, have only seen this business go one way and that's up. Um, between, you know, revenue growth, diversification, um, our uh, partnership with JBS, they've only seen this business expand and grow and opportunities um, come out of that. And then to have those restrictions that were put in place um, shut down all, basically all food service trade except for the vulnerable care um, the care market that we supply uh, was a was a big hit to the business emotionally, and it was very it was it was a challenging time. I, you, you just we just did not see it coming, and you can never prepare yourself for it. Like on a Sunday at night to hear that everything shut down by Monday evening, basically nobody ordered the next day. So you're effectively you know our business went from our business dropped. Um, by 80% was all we were supplying in the end were nursing homes and, and hospitals and vulnerable care. So, yeah, it was, it was a very difficult time um, all around for our, for our business, our staff and ourselves. We just, you know, it was, it was even though you sort of, because you don't know, the hardest part was nobody, well, we still don't know where all this is heading. So we're in a better place now, I suppose. Um, but back then, we didn't know how long, 
this would go on for or or what this really meant. So you really you sort of feel like all your business has been taken away from you and when are you going to get it back? You would have seen the rumblings initially at the start of the year, though, in the export markets overseas, right? Yeah, we did. But I don't I don't know if we really took it that seriously here. I mean, we, we were watching and um, – but I don't we, – we, we knew something was coming, but, you know, we, but we just didn't know how that would affect us. So then – the restrictions were announced. Food service, particularly with your, you know, your pubs, your hotels, that all shuts down overnight. Not to mention cruise ships and what it did there. What did you then do with all the meat you've got on stock? <laughs> yeah, well, we discounted a lot of it. So I, um, you know, you, you can have up to like twenty million dollars worth of meat in your fridges at any one time, right? Yeah, yeah. Our stock holdings would average nineteen to twenty million dollars. Um, obviously, pre-COVID, at any one time. Uh, and we, you know, we had to sell. We, well, the hardest part when you have it, when you go through something like that, and we hope we never have to do it again, is turning off the supply chain. So you, you got meat already booked to come in. Had to defer a lot of product and and cancel what we could, and have some very difficult conversations with suppliers. We were very lucky at the time, though, and I think the industry was that retail was booming. So food service was shut, but retail was booming. So there, there was a insatiable demand. Uh, from a lot of people, a lot of customers that, that wanted retail product, a product for retail market. So a lot of um, wholesalers, a lot of traders, um, you know, we were able to sell a lot of that product into them. We couldn't sell it all, though, because a lot of the product is bespoke for certain customers. And, you know, you talk about the cruise lines and that's, that's you know, that's 15% of our revenue. Um, there's a lot of product tied up uh, with them. We've still got product tied up in the freezers for them. Um, which has is bespoke to them. But with that surge in terms of retail, a lot of it also would have been asking for things such as your mincemeat that were just flying off shelves everywhere. Yeah, like it's yeah, mincemeat was popular, and obviously every cut that could be minced, like a, a top side or a or a round or a, a silver side, and you know chucks, etc. Anything that could be minced was commanding a high price. Um, it, it was mainly minced, but there was also a, a surge in, in a lot of areas for state cuts as well um, and, and expensive primals. Uh, there was even uh, a rush on a bit of Wagyu as well. But I think it was a crazy time. I mean, butcher shops were emptying their shelves every day. People were going in, and I think what was happening was they'd go in and see, you know, the shelves empty. So if, if, if what was left on the shelf was pork, they'd buy that and clean that up too. So I think everybody was just trying to fill their free, free, freezers and fridges with whatever they could. Um, and no different to what they were doing with all the other things like toilet paper and bread and um, and other items as well. Yeah, the toilet paper, of course. But in terms of we've got some places starting to open up, restrictions lift in certain areas of the country, but also the threat of a second wave of, uh, well, already sweeping its way through Victoria. How is that then affecting your plans moving forward? Yeah, we've got to be cautious. So, um, look, it's good that the restrictions restrictions have been lifted, and we we you know we've seen an uplift in in business. We've also seen a downturn very recently with the recent spikes. Uh, so people obviously, and that's without restrictions being imposed in Sydney, especially. 
Uh, and that's on the back of what's happened in Victoria and the recent spikes in, in, in Sydney. And I think that's just people being cautious and not going out and, and wanting to keep, wanting to keep away from some of these areas where they could possibly catch the virus, um, is the way we're seeing it. So planning forward, um, we're just being very cautious. I think it's going to be a slow road back, but we know it will be a slow road back. Uh, you've got to remember there's a part of our market that we won't see this year. For example, airline trade, cruise ships, um, international borders, uh, which flows into the international hotels, not being full and busy, um, functions, function centres, conventions, all that market, all that event market uh, is decimated. Um, you've also got the sporting events too, which, you know, they're, they're, they haven't exactly been filling those stadiums back. So, with all that, that's about 30% of our business. So until that comes back, you know, we, we've, we've, got some, we've got some hard times ahead. Nothing's going to change too quickly. How have you personally been going through this time? I imagine you would have had a lot of sleepless nights. Yeah, a lot of sleepless nights. But, you know, we, we, what we learned out of this is that we, we created a diversified model and – not that we ever knew there was going to be a pandemic, <laughs> but um, but we do, we created a diversified model um, to mainly to have a, a a secure, sustainable business that wasn't reliant on one division, and that's worked for us. Having a business which um, has export, uh, our cooked value add, and our food service division, obviously with the food service division being hit the hardest, the other divisions were able to carry the business. Um, look. This is a year where you really can't look at your results. Um, it's going to be a tough year. It's about survival and it's about keeping the business strong and that's all we've been doing. And, you know, a lot of the things we are doing now in the background is planning for the future. So strengthening our management teams, retraining, thinking of new ideas and initiatives, uh, looking at how we can plan that B2C space in the future. Um, so there's a lot of work being done in the background and a lot of work being done to infrastructure on the side as well. So we're still we're still investing in the business. We're not looking at this as, okay, let's just stop working on anything because we don't know what's around the corner. Even though it feels that way, we're being optimistic that things will change, we'll come out of this, and we want to come out of this strong. So there's still a lot of work being done in the background within the business now. Yeah, thanks so much for talking to me. One last question before you go. You get one last meal. What would you choose? In a ready meal or a meal? any meal, any meal, any, <laughs> any last meal? Oh, my last meal would have to be a tomahawk steak. Well, it'd take a while to eat that too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, you said last meal. It's got a yeah. last. <laughs> Thanks so much, Peter. Not a problem. Thanks for listening to Great Southern Grass Matters. Remember, this podcast drops every Thursday at 2pm, so make sure you tune in on whatever device that may be. Of course, if you like what you're listening, please leave us a review. It really does help to get it out to more people who want to listen. And of course, you can follow us on our socials at The Great Southern Family.